Thank you for joining me today, and welcome to the Contextual Insertion Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Smith. This is Daily Dispatch number 24. If you haven't already, please go and sign up for my free Substack newsletter at contextualinsurgent.substack.com. I also have a Telegram channel you can find linked there. You can also search in Telegram for Contextual Insurgent Project. If you appreciate my content and insights, you can support me several different ways. I have a Patreon that's linked in my Substack. You can also go directly to patreon.com backslash eesmith4. My cash app is dollar sign eesmith4, and I also take crypto. I have the wallet address and QR code for Bitcoin at the bottom of my latest Substack newsletter. You can also find links to my Telegram channel and my Patreon there at the bottom with the Bitcoin. If you'd like to donate or support me in some other fashion, please reach out and let me know. Ultimately, I do all this to help you, so if you'd like to say thanks by doing the financial equivalent of buying me a monthly coffee, that is greatly appreciated. Back in a past life a few years ago, I was big into filmmaking, went to a film school for a little while, and was actually had a little side, side business dealing with cinematography and independent film production, worked on some really interesting projects. Well, anyway, one of the projects I worked on was a documentary, and... We had several people from Canada working on this project, and I had an interesting discussion with one of the Canadian gentlemen um, about some of the comparisons between America and Canada. One of his observations I thought was, you know, it later came out in my experience when I finally visited Canada, I thought this observation was fairly true, but he said, basically America, America is about 10 times whatever Canada is in whatever metric you wish to use. You know, Canada, you know, Canada um, compared to America, America has 10 times the population. Uh, and America is like 10 times as fucked up. But America is 10 times as dynamic and productive and just optimistic and just, you know, pure emotions and basically anything you want. I thought that was fairly, fairly accurate. Um, well, you know, South Africa, there's been some crazy stuff that's happened there lately. And you know, my impression from knowing South Africans, and I've never actually visited there yet, I would like to eventually, um, but my impression from that country is it may not have 10 times the population of America, and it may, may not be as 10 times as awesome, but it's definitely 10 times as fucked up. If you've been paying attention, you probably noticed like last week they had some pretty insane riots. Um, they've kind of calmed down some this week they don't seem like they've sparked up there was some concern um that it would happen um but it has not so far but there's a tremendous amount of damage and it you know may not have done at quite as much damage cumulative damage is what happened in america last year but it's a much smaller country so i want to talk about some of the stuff that happened now that things have kind of settled down it's kind of cleared up a little bit and i've had a chance to do some research um, I want to talk about some of the things that happened last week, some of the things that triggered the violence, and some of the interesting lessons I think we can draw from it. For starters, I think there's some really interesting parallels between America and South, and South Africa. Um, both of them, you know, permanent colonization started fairly roughly around the same time, you know, end of the 16th century, beginning of, of the 17th century. Uh, within a few decades, you know, they were fair. Like there was, there were some people in both cases. They did actually have some natives, but it wasn't super populated. Like there's, you know, apparently when Columbus landed a hundred years before America, like North America was incredibly heavily populated, but the diseases worked their way up, and something like there was already a massive population die-off before the Jamestown land between like Columbus and like St. Augustine and some of, you know, Hernando de Soto and everything like that. Some of their expeditions brought a lot of diseases. And by the time like Jamestown happened and then, you know, Plymouth Rock, the population in North America with the Indians had already been reduced, like probably 80% or something was one of the things I've heard. It was just like a massive die off. But anyway, it was fairly sparsely populated when both people, you know, 
landed there. There were actually the uh, Khoisan, I guess the Bushmen, uh, were actually in South Africa. But it was fairly sparsely populated because there wasn't really a carrying capacity for the land. So, you know, these Europeans landed in both places and in South Africa, you know, they actually brought in, as they started developing the, you know, southern Cape of Africa, you know, they're bringing in um, people eventually to work from the different tribes. They start migrating down to to work with them, um, work on the farms and everything like that. And, of course, you know, there's all the, the Zulu Wars and it's a... It's, you know, 400 years of history. So there's a lot of that going on. And one of the other parallels there, too, is, you know, like in America, it's really interesting because they're, it's, they're both extremely tribal places. Like, we, we have this tendency, you know, in America, we talk about white people, but we, it, we lose sight of the fact that even white people in America had distinctly different backgrounds and histories and, and like, um, migration patterns into the nation you know, by the time of the Revolutionary War, even, like, just people with English, like, this was a overwhelmingly, you know, pe people from the British Isles were here, but even just people from the British Isles, there was at least four distinct uh, subgroups and subcultures of people, you know, depending on how much you buy into David Hackett Fisher and Albion Seed, if you ever read that, it's a pretty interesting book, um, talking about the folkways here during during the colonies, but yeah, you have... You know, these even from the British Isles, there was like four distinct groups of white people um, with different cultures, and they all had a, a serious rivalry. And then, of course, that's not even counting when the Germans start coming in in numbers and the Scandinavians. So even though technically white people, there's very distinctive different cultures, um, you know, different identities in the nation, and they all kind of settle in different places. And South Africa, you know, even the whites there, it's like they have the Afrikaners who are the descendants of the Dutch, the original settlers, and then, you know, the, there's the people, the descendants of the English who came there a couple hundred years later. And, of course, you know, we both have this parallel of, like, this massive conflict. Like, here we had a civil war, which was driven, you know, largely by a lot of these cultural differences that we had between um, the folkways the different subcultures here like in the north and the south in the south you have like the cavaliers and the borderers and in the north you have like the puritans and the quakers which are again i'm working off of david hackett fisher his ethnography on this um in albion seed i'm not going to give you a, a book review on albion seed but check it out it's a really interesting book it kind of once you start reading it you start to kind of really see a lot of the conflicts in american history and it helps you really kind of understand them Instead of treating like everyone as white as this big, you know, a white white identity in America is this big blob, it's not really. I mean, the idea of this collective whiteness in America is kind of a new thing. It was still like when the country was still ninety percent white for most of its history. It was there was a very distinct difference between like Protestants and Catholics, and and whether you were like a Scandinavian or German. Like it's kind of funny because you'll see stuff. Like, Ben Franklin did not like Germans. It was pretty hilarious to read this stuff now, things that we don't even think about. But yeah, anyway. So we had these massive conflicts here. You know, we had our Civil War. South Africa had, you know, the Boer War right around the end of the 19th, start of the 20th century, where they basically, you know, fought the Boers and put them under the boot. Like, it was the first concentration camps. Like, that was where Hitler got the model for that was from what the British did in South Africa when they were trying to, you know, unite all of the different provinces and different little nations and colonies down there, and they were fighting the Boers. Um, you know, they had, it was a pretty brutal fight, kind of like the Civil War um, that we had here, but this is, you know, white people fighting other white people from a different culture, and that later became, like, the foundation for whites in South Africa. It's like the, the Afrikaners and then the Anglos. Um, even with the Africans, you know, they have like massive different tribes there as well. I mean, of course, the Zulus are the biggest, but they've still got different other tribes. And it's it's a pretty crazy tribal mix. And it's it's tribal and multi-ethnic, kind of a lot of the ways like America. Honestly, it probably not America in general, but it reminds me a lot of like, well, I'm from the Mississippi Delta. So South African really kind of reminds me of the same because... You know, we both, the whites are the minority and, like, the blacks the majority. Then you've got the Indians and other Asian groups there in the middle that are kind of 
doing their thing, and it's it's kind of like a interesting tribal mix-up. Anyway, enough about all of that. Not intending to do a really deep dive into South African history. I wouldn't call myself an expert on it. Just it's interesting about the parallels between what we're seeing in America and what they're having in South Africa and how so much of what's happening there today is stuff that seems to be presaging some lessons that we have here for America. So one of the things I want to start off with here is there's an interesting Twitter thread um, from Jonathan Witt, who's a South African, and I want to go over this thread because he's got a lot of really interesting insights into what's happening. I'll have a link to it in the description so you can click on it and read and review later, but I want to kind of go over this, and there's a couple other other written pieces I want to talk about. Um, from different people, including some with some really interesting backgrounds that you wouldn't expect saying the things they say. But yeah, anyway, let's start on this. The narrative you may have heard is that the former president of the country, Jacob Zuma, has been jailed for contempt of court after refusing to appear at the Zondo Commission, a commission of inquiry he established to probe widespread state corruption. One of the issues with setting up a commission to establish the extent of government corruption and so-called state capture is that at the head or former head of state, you're likely to be asked some difficult questions. Zuma isn't big on difficult questions. As such, he looked for every excuse under the sun, illness, bias, jurisdiction, etc., in an ultimately futile attempt to avoid appearing at the commission. The commission then escalated the matter to the courts, and the Constitutional Court found Zuma in contempt. He was then sentenced to 15 months imprisonment for the contempt. It bears, it bears mentioning at this point, Zuma is yet to stand trial for more than 700 charges of corruption, fraud, and money laundering in, in, emanating from an arms deal more than 20 years ago. Naturally, the former president has supporters in the country, many of whom believe that he has been hard done by. There is also the issue of tribalism, whereby Zuma is a Zulu man in a country with several ethnic groups, of which the Zulu nation is the largest, with 12 million people. Following a week of uncertainty, Zuma handed himself over to police and was jailed last week. Subsequent to this, there have been protest marches by supporters and in recent days, violent rioting and looting by various groups of people. However, this is not the full story. South Africa is a complex country, no different to many others, but perhaps unique in how it came to be, its oppressive past, and its way of dealing or not dealing with all of the aforementioned. These issues are just a part of where we find ourselves now. In 1994, when the country had its first democratic elections, the African National Congress, or ANC, was elected to power, and their leader at the time, Nelson Mandela, installed by them as president. Mandela, as is well documented, was a conciliatory man who preached unity. Thus, unity, the rainbow nation, was the message, and together with a relatively robust economic policy, which prioritized GDP growth and sound management of the fiscal, as well as relatively free market economics. Things were far from perfect, but they were on the up. For the average citizen, including the poor, there was improvement, albeit slow, in both living standards and general poverty. However, the ANC is a conflicted party, having made a deal with the communist devil in the 60s and then buying Soviet propaganda whole later on. Thus, a laissez-faire approach to the economy was always doomed to fail, or more appropriately, was doomed to be sabotaged. After Mandela, the ANC moved steadily towards far more central control and planning of both the economy and of society at large. Government pushed socialism and identity politics hard through poor social welfare and measures like enforced race-based employment slash businesses, and academic journalist business leaders all responded in kind by endorsing these policies and foisting them upon society at large. In the end, the only people who benefited were a handful of well-connected individuals and already wealthy elites. The GDP growth began to slow, and the real economy started to shrink. Fewer jobs and opportunities for the poor was the net result. Under Ter, the populace was actually votes, a minority continued to elect the ANC, who in turn continued to install progressively poorer and poorer leaders. A lot can be said of Zuma in his corrupt ways, but one thing he isn't is an ideologue. In comes Cyril Ramaphosa as the president of the country, a former trade unionist, a committed communist at heart, and a man who had used these race-based policies, the black economic empowerment, to become a billionaire. He takes over with the country at a precipice. He's no stranger to the situation, having been Zuma's deputy president and having presided over such failures as the collapse of our electricity generation, 
to the point that we've now had regular blackouts called load shedding for more than a decade on and off. He is also well aware of the very high unemployment in the country and a deepening divide between the classes. He approaches this by doubling down on socialist policy, based on a failed Soviet-area policy which his party calls the National Democratic Revolution. It's important to note that he and the ANC policy is largely and vocally supported by almost every major news editor, academic, large corporation, etc., and that any pushback is deemed to be either racist or right-wing or some other ad hominem. Sound familiar? Given that this background, he didn't say sound familiar, I'm saying that. That's editorial. <laughs> Giving his background of a failing country, a corrupt state, and a largely unemployed and hopeless populace, interstage left COVID-19. It's still too early to tell for sure, but it appears as if the government views this as the ideal scapegoat for all their failures. As with most other countries in the world, we were too panicked at the existence we too panicked at the existence of a novel virus. March of 2020, they instituted a lockdown for 21 days to flatten the curve. To do this, he instituted a state of disaster which more than 16 months later remains in place. At what point South Africa had the harshest lockdown in the world with bans on such items as open-toed shoes and cooked chicken. To this day, we remain in lockdown, having moved in and out of harsher restrictions over time. Lockdowns have been the straw which broke the camel's back. In developed countries, lockdowns have taken their toll, but governments have been able to mitigate some of the damage by printing trillions of dollars and falling back on a competent, if not ideal, welfare system. We simply don't have either option available to us. It's important to understand that a majority of people in the country live hand-to-mouth, and many who are fortunate enough to have a job are supported not only themselves, but spouses, children, and extended families. The disappearance of many millions of jobs almost overnight from the tourism and restaurant industries, as well as all of the connected businesses which support and provide services, created an unprecedented crisis. South Africans are industrious to name any plans and coped. However, it's more than a year later and there's no end in sight. Our real unemployment rate approaches 70%, which together with decades of substandard basic education leaves many without hope and very little to live for. Telling people to stay home and stay safe only exacerbates this. There is no doubt that the jailing of Zuma has allowed for an ignition of these riots, but to blame the, that event alone is merely an excuse which fails to understand the broader picture, which I've done my best to elucidate. This is happening because of a failed state. Lastly, to address the riots themselves, it's important to note that they are severe and those infected have been devastated. That said, this is not a civil war, at least not yet, and while large areas have been affected, the majority of the country is calm and peaceful. South Africa is almost twice the size of Texas and five times the size of the United Kingdom. Of our nine provinces, there are two which are mainly affected, which are Gauteng and KwaZulu-Natal. Um, by the way, those two provinces, he doesn't actually mention this here, but those two provinces, which KwaZulu-Natal, KwaZulu-Natal and Gauteng happen to have about half of the, they're like the two most heavily populated provinces, um, and they include the capital, and they include their major port, which is Durban. Um, those are the, contain roughly half the population of the nation, and they're the two biggest provinces. He doesn't actually mention that here, but I think that's important for me to at least bring that up. Thus, while there are major areas of unrest, looting and violence were not in a complete chaos. With that said, what is going on is wholly unacceptable and shows just how vulnerable we are as a country and a community. Our police services have in many ways been hauled out and simply cannot cope with their normal workload, never mind the current situation. So, their police were defunded before ours were. Um, we can only hope that things will be brought under control in the coming days, failing which there are major concerns about the continued spread of this violence and significant escalations. Uh, many outside the government have already taken measures to try and prevent this. I'm assuming he's talking about the community patrols that are happening. We're going to touch on that as well. That's a really important lesson. The medium to long term, we are unfortunately doomed to repeat this and worse unless we treat the root causes with viable solutions as opposed to those who have shown to repeatedly fail both here and elsewhere. The likelihood of the ANC changing course is extremely slim. Their latest move includes further cozying up to China, renewing their obsession with banning civilian firearm ownership, and pushing for socialized medicine. Anyone who has studied history knows how this story ends. Whether we can change that trajectory remains to be seen.
It's a really good tweet thread. Um, be sure to click on it and read it yourself if you want. Um, kind of review what he went over. But the big takeaways I get from it is, you know, you have this country that's multi-ethnic and multicultural, and there's segregation, and they decide to end the segregation and have equality amongst everyone, um, you know, and have color this colorblind country, and it works for a very short, brief period, or at least it seems to be at least moving in the right direction, but then you have these bad actors that kind of swoop in and leverage, you know, tribalism and identity politics and ethnic divisions to basically loot the country, um, and some people get fabulously wealthy from it, a lot of people get incredibly poor, um, and now there's more conflict and, and division and, you know, with everyone, and there's lots of corruption, lots of enforced, um, economic uh, redistribution and that he touches on that but there's another one i'm going to read next that really really harps on that um but then there's also basically defunding the police and the military because he's talking about the, the police are hollowed out they can't respond to this the military can't respond to it either because they've been gutted um the military and the police have both been you know defunded and crushed under you know identity politics and ethnic grievances so they're no longer effective um, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty wild. It's pretty, pretty crazy to read because, you know, obviously a lot of that stuff I just said to you is, should be very familiar because we're seeing that start here in America. Next one I'm going to touch on here, um, it's a piece in the New York Post from Rian Milan. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to read some excerpts from it, but it's really interesting because Rian Milan is, to give you some background on this guy, he's, he's an Afrikaner. He was born and raised in South Africa, he's a white guy, you know, Afrikaner, the Boers, uh, white people with Boer ancestry. Um, but it's interesting because he, he was, or, you know, at least at least was a leftist. He was one of the main people behind the end of apartheid. Um, he comes from a very old, very prominent Afrikaner family. One of his, he's actually, one of his relatives is was Daniel Milan, who was the prime minister of South Africa, who was the main driver of imposing apartheid in the first place. So, I mean, and he was also, um, he wrote, he left to America in like 19, late 1970s, um, right after he graduated from high school. He was apparently a punk rocker and everything in South Africa and you know, had an anti-apartheid band he was with. But he went there and he's a reporter and a writer and he worked here in America and he wrote a memoir of his time growing up in South Africa called My Traitor's Heart. Um, and he came back here, you know, like 1990. And was a big force, um, at least amongst the whites, for ending apartheid. So it's really interesting because some of the some of the takeaways he's going to talk about this in this piece. So his piece in the Post is titled "How Equity Ideology Plunged South Africa into Inequality and Chaos." He starts by kind of reviewing all the destruction that happened in South Africa, um, and this is where I want you to start paying attention. The overarching truth is that an idea pushed South Africa to the brink. You guys know this idea because it animates the sermons of critical race theorists trying to force you to take the knee and atone for your supposed sins. I am going to call this the beautiful idea because it is beautiful in a way, but also dangerous. The beautiful idea holds that all humans are born with identical gifts and should turn out to be clones of one another in a just society. Conversely, any situation in which disparity survives is in itself proof of injustice. This is the line promoted by CRT pundit Imbram X. Kendi, who, promote, who blames all racial disparities on racist policies. But what policies is he talking about? Kendi is reluctant to be drawn into this score, and with good reason. He can't name the policies, because they don't exist anymore. In your country, all discriminatory laws have been repealed, all forms of overt racism outlawed, and replaced by laws that enforce preferential black access to jobs, housing, and college admissions. So Kendi must insist that an invisible miasma of systemic racism infects white people, propels them to act in ways so subtly racist that most of them aren't even aware that they're sick until it's pointed out to them by diversity consultants. He talks a little bit um, at this point about how the old South African revolutionaries would have thought this sort of thing was, was ridiculous and you know how they wanted to end capitalism and and you know have a classless society gunpoint like a very old school very old left you know formal communist um society and of course the soviet union collapsed 
uh, right around the time, you know, apartheid's ending a couple years later, so the ANC's gaining power. Um, so that's when he said they kind of had to embrace, like, neoliberalism. Um, it's sort of interesting, because I've talked about this before, um, about the differences between the old left and the new left, about the old left was very much focused on the economic stuff, um, and then they started to switch more about gender and, and sexuality and identity politics stuff. It sort of expanded out, and that was like one of the big delineations when the old left, which is very much more like orthodox Marxist, and this new um, new left, which is, has lots of identity focused on it outside of the economic stuff. Um, now, I had a, uh, I'll actually link the podcast uh, in the comments as well, in the description as well, I had one where I had a um, an interview from 2015 with Bernie Sanders and Ezra Klein, um, where Bernie's like open borders. He's like that's that's a right wing proposal. That's a Koch brothers proposal, and 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 it's it's crazy as hell to hear Bernie Sanders talk like this because he sounds incredibly based. He's like, no, we need closed borders because that undermines local, um, you know, local jobs and and local uh, local income and and wages. It was just incredibly fascinating to hear Bernie Sanders in 2015 talk like Donald Trump. So anyway, um, Rian Malana here starts talking about a lot of these, um, the black economic empowerment policies that they put in, and I'm going to jump in here. Starting in 1999, Mbeki's government enacted a phalanx of American-sounding laws intended to eradicate racial disparities of the sort that exercised Kendi. The old revolutionary songs were dusted off at rallies, but somewhere along the line, the beautiful idea replaced socialism as their ideological lodestar. I mean, a beautiful idea kind of sounds like the blank slate thing that um, a lot of the new left is big into, which is like, you know, there's no real, you know, intrinsic differences at all between any different population. Like, everyone's like, I've also heard it referred to disparagingly as gray goo. Like, everyone is just basically interchangeable, fungible, gray goo. Like, there's no real differences between men and women or, you know, biologically, psychologically, or anything, any type of different populations at all. That's kind of what the beautiful idea is. At the turn of the new millennium, Becky let it be known that he was displeased by the national rugby team's slow progress towards full racial representation. Athletic failure, he suggested, was preferable to lack of full representation. Equity before victory. At least initially, Mbeki's scheme worked fairly well. Some blacks became billionaires. Many others joined the white suburban elite and sent their kids to private schools. Transformation of the civil service spurred the growth of a new black middle class, generally commanding salaries far higher than in the private economy. But in the longer term, the economic consequences were devastating. In addition to paying taxes at Scandinavian levels, South African corporations were required to cede large ownership stakes to black partners, whether or not they brought anything to the table besides black skin and connections in high places. Firms were also required to meet racial quotas in hiring and ensure that management was racially representative, meaning roughly 88% black. Tendering for government business became increasingly pointless because contracts were invariably awarded to black-owned firms even if their prices were double, triple, or tenfold. Investment dried up. Brains drained, the economy stagnated, causing employment to surge to 11.4 million today from 3.3 million in 1994. The upshot, utter misery for the underclass, doomed to sit in tin shacks, half-starved, watching the black elite grow fat on the pickings of equity laws and rampant corruption. This was an especially bitter experience for young black people, 63% of whom are now jobless, too broke, even for booze and drugs, to dull the pain. Last week, it proved easy for Zuma and his acolytes to tempt them onto the streets with the promise of loot. And so we come to the moral of the story. It's warning about the practical consequences of ideas like those propounded by Kendi and CRT superstar Robin D'Angelo, who in the name of equity maintains it is racist to talk of work ethic or to expect all workers to show up on time regardless of race. It is exactly these values that have brought South Africa to its knees. We created a society where nothing was expected of blacks, save blackness. Honor and vigilance were not demanded of government appointees. Sloth was tolerated. Failure and corruption went unpunished. Blind pursuit of equity began to achieve its opposite, a staggering equality gap among blacks themselves, with a fortunate few benefiting hugely and the masses sinking into abject poverty.
It's really an interesting piece, especially because of who's writing it. Again, this is the guy who wrote My Traitor's Heart, was a big push, a big person pushing against apartheid. Um, back when it was, you know, like the 1990s, right before it ended, it was he was one of the big people. Like, this is a left-wing journalist and Arthur, and it's not really someone that they can easily dismiss. Um, one thing, I've, one of my good friends lived in Africa for, I've got several friends that have lived in Africa, but one in particular, my East German friend, an older friend, he was kind of explaining something to me one time. He was in, um, he was like in Tanzania and Mozambique for like eight years, like back in the 80s. Um, one thing he explained to me was the thing about Africans is, you know, they're like, of course, we say tribal, which is, has lots of different connotations. But, you know, the way he kind of explained it to me was, you know, like if, if Bill Gates or something like that, you know, if his, if he had to hire his nephew, like, let's say, you know, if his nephew was incompetent, you know, he wouldn't be expected in America to hire his nephew. If he said, no, I can't hire you because you're just, you don't have any qualifications for the job. I don't know what Bill Gates would or wouldn't do. I'm just saying, hypothetically speaking, if he said, no, sorry, you're, you're, you don't have the qualifications for the job here in America, people would understand. They wouldn't actually, you know, get upset about it. And then if he did hire him and if his nephew screwed up and he did fire his nephew, again, that wouldn't be a really controversial thing in America. It's like people would totally understand. Um, but in Africa, he's like, they can't, you can't do that. It's like when you get a job somewhere, if you get any type of authority, you are expected to take care of your family. You're expected to, to hire your relatives and put them in positions where they get paid for a job, even if they suck at it. And you can't fire them, even if the, you know they suck at the job. He's like, that's generally an African type of trait. You just can't do that. It's very, very tribal. Um, you know, he's like, if you did fire your net, what he's told me was like, if, if you were an African and you fired your nephew for being incompetent, your family would probably kill you for it. So it's it's that's something they can't really do. And he kind of he kind of touches on it. There's very much an insane grift thing. I mean, this happens everywhere. To be fair. Um, it just sounds like it's way more intense there. I mean, we, we, <laughs> I mean, we all, we all know where connections and family connections work. That's, 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 a, that is a universal trait. It just sounds like it's the, the intensity that I've heard from people that have been to Africa that have explained it to me. It's way, way higher than you find in other places. Um, but yeah, he touches on that, like how it's just the corruption and the graft and like the explicit racial preferences that they have there. It's like even really beyond affirmative action. It's like stuff that we're starting to see um, happen in California now where they're like, you have to hire XYZ people. Um, there's companies now that are saying, you know, we have to hire people. We can't hire a white male or a white person. We have to hire like a person of color, all this other stuff. Um, California is now requiring, you know, racial um, diversity. Like they're explicitly requiring racial diversity on like, you know, company boards. So we're seeing a lot of the stuff that happened here um, that he's describing that it's starting to take over here in America. And this is what Kendi's pushing. He's actually attacking Kendi over because he's like, your ideas have been tried in South Africa and it destroyed the country. So there's another piece I want to talk about here. Um, this one is in politicsweb.za. It's like a South African political commentary site, like a news site by uh, Heinrich Mathi. He's got seven key takeaways of, you know, the riots that happened. And number one, political factions and criminal criminal gangs are key actors. Uh, he talks about, it's sort of interesting, because he's talking about the stuff that triggered it with the imprisonment of, of Zuma was the main trigger, but there's a lot of other factions, a lot of, you know, pro, and it's really interesting piece, because he talks about an overview of things. He also talks about some insights into riot behavior. So it's someone who's, you know, he's seen some riots before, but um, anyway, he says, you know, political factions and criminal gangs are key actors. Um, he's talking about a lot of the things here. Again, I will link, the, link this in my description. Um, there's an economic sabotage campaign that's aimed at a lot of infrastructure and hospitals. Um, there's lots of communication structures were targeted. More than 100 mobile phone towers were destroyed. Uh, lots of community radio stations. Um, he said that's really what triggered that, is that there was a lot of, a big wave of attacks, um, and then it spilled over into looting, which is, you know, again, something I've said um, that happens, and this is interesting because this is something that they do. 
is that you know I, I've said um, um, you know protests are cover for riots, riots are cover for direct action, um, and there's actual you know leftist political thought that uses looting as a political tool and a means for expression. But another thing for looting, um, he's talking about some of the looting that happened. And he was there in London. They had riots in 2011. Um, the police were completely overwhelmed. Um, looters started emptying the electronic shop. Um, and they started to torch. You know, he's like, opportunism and organized crime is something that you see happen to these things. And he's basically talking about a lot of the stuff that I've seen um, and that I've chronicled before in different pieces, written pieces and podcasts. You know, he, he's seen the same stuff around the world. He's seen it happen in South Africa. Um, the, the rioting happens. The rioting, part of the rioting is to um, overwhelm the police and the law enforcement so that they can't really respond. And that's when the direct action people start hitting what they're hitting and they start hitting all the communications and infrastructure. Um, number two, he says government has no authority in vast tracts. So um, there was organized local groups, he says in the past week to target specific businesses and farms. So there's like big main factions attacking um, infrastructure, but then at the local areas, um, people would start attacking their rivals. They would use it as cover to kneecap their rival businesses and rival local factions. Um, you know, it's, it's really interesting. Um, there's the, the opportunists that are happening. There's several different, and this is more the riot stuff. Um, he said, you know, there is the looters from low-income households there was the opportunistic wave of people there's looters from low-income households that went for the basics food baby supplies detergents and stuff like that middle middle-class looters went after furniture and appliances and he said it's interesting because the big house big warehouses and stuff it would take like 48 hours to have them looted completely but as soon as they got finished with the looting the buildings would, would be torched and he said it was very organized um, he says, the absence of law enforcement forces in many areas was quite noticeable. Um, you know, one quote here, internal sovereignty um, from an assessment in a foreign paper. The government has lost authority over vast tracts of South Africa over the underworld where xenophobia, looting, and parading mobs rule. After the riots, the power of organized gangs and local bosses will be stronger in many areas. So... This is something I I've t have touched on before, and it's something I've heard Greg Lefritz talk about. Um, it's called car cartelification. It's where the government begins to fail. And so these infrastructures, um, the, the, the local infra alternative infrastructure, which is interesting because this is sort of goes into a leftist thing that they do. It's called dual power. This is really sort of the same thing. It's like when the existing infrastructure and institutions and government begin to degrade, there's going to be an alternate alternative power structure in place which if 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 the government is failing and the biggest thing you have in the area is organized crime then as the government gets weaker the organized crime will become the government and that that's called cartelification it's something that happens a lot in mexico um where it's like the cartels basically are the government where they they will ambush you know government forces and kill them and like there's never any real um, like they'll have open combat in places in Mexico, um, like they don't they have you know they'll just run everything. Like the the police and the mayors have to ask the cartel bosses what they're going to do. So, or you know before they do anything. So yeah, that that's what sounds like big chunks of South Africa have the same issues. Um, the riots is affected uh, number three. The riots affected cities, towns, and farms. So. There's a lot of stuff in the major and urban centers, and that's very common. And this is something else that we saw here, too. Um, he said, most of the ma meter attention is on major urban centers. However, lots of smaller towns were wrecked beyond recognition. There were farms, you know, out in... Obviously, farms aren't in the middle of a downtown city. We did see videos of a lot of farms being burned. Um, places where cows and chickens got completed loot, completely looted. Um, we, you know, it's, and we did see a lot of that happening. So this is one of the things, like, they looted a lot of the cities, and the cities got a lot of attention, but they started to, um, move out into the suburban area, the suburbs and the outlying towns. And that's something that we saw last year, too, is they would start 
to, um, you know, the, the suburbs would have protests and riots. And, and, and suburbs, people used to think that's in a city, but you'd start seeing that in small towns. You'd start seeing that um, kind of in places you would not you would not expect to see it. And, and they had that too. Like a lot of that focus was on the big towns, but it happened in a lot of the small towns too. Number four, there is no police, we are the police. That's a quote from a community leader. He's not identified probably for you know, safety reasons, but it's talking about, again, something that we touched on earlier. Um, there was a, a lot of these local communities banded together to defend their communities because the police were not showing up. Um, no law enforcement forces were to be seen in these areas. Residents experienced hours of tension, cries, and gunshots. We now know that the males of households in predominantly Indian areas, I mean, it was everywhere. I've seen videos of all different races, including even even the black Africans and um, banding together and, like, defending areas. Um, but the Indians are the one that they had a lot of, a lot of real drama. Um, you know, yeah, they banded together, and they would, a lot of these people armed themselves. Um, they would barricade shops and businesses as well as their neighborhoods. Um, different WhatsApp groups. Um, the civilian and community defense efforts prevented looters from entering neighborhoods. There is no police. We are the police, one community leader stated. Um, there were some tensions in certain areas where um, looters on their way to malls tried to use alternative routes, and these people um, blocked them. It was mostly a lot of the friction between the blacks and the Indians. There was actually a bunch of crazy calls on, um, you know, uh, Twitter and other social media for the for the blacks to attack the Indian community because of the way they were defending themselves. Um, number five, regional and community dynamics trump. So the riots were in Galting. Um, the serious political impact, he says, was in KwaZulu-Natal, um, the provincial, which is an ANC-controlled province. He says they didn't actually take a stand on anything. Um, that's like the the KwaZulu Natal is like the heart of like the Zulu um, ethnic um, nation in South Africa. So um, that's where the most of it was. He says it wasn't. Um, there's Afrikaner, you know, where the most Afrikaners live in some of the northern and western provinces. There's like Afroforum Solidarity. These other groups who are trying to push for more of a autonomy like for example there wasn't much um I don't, there wasn't really any violence at all in the western cape which is apparently down like the southwest corner and there's a big mountain range that separates it from the rest of the country and i know some people that were there in the western cape and they're like hey there's nothing everyone's just having like a normal life here um so there's a parts of the country it's like a lot of the even though it was like it took place in the two provinces that have half of the population um, big chunks of the rest of the country are much more uh, rural or separated by um, geographical features from the major parts of disruption, like the Western Cape. Um, and there's also some talk about like some maybe autonomy or possibly even independence. I, I actually know someone I know, um, an Afrikaner, was talking about. There was some talk about maybe like the Northern Cape, which is another province that's kind of on the west northwestern corner that's very remote, has a lot of uh, agriculture. And demographically, it's it's still like majority African, but it, it's a lot more functional group. And I think it's a different ethnic, like African, like the black ethnic ethnicity there is a, a different group from the Zulus. So I don't know, it's all really complicated. There was some talk about, you know, People were wanting to move there and make the Northern Cape a different country. I don't know. Anyway, it's regional and community dynamics was a, was number five, and it's kind of a very important point that he's talking about. Again, that's something we see here in America a lot. Um, you know, we have our blue states and our red states, but even more than that, you know, we have, like, different cultures. Even some red states don't have, you know, may have a different view on self-defense than, than more red-red states are. So it's really it's really different, and that's very important. Like they're seeing some of the dynamics there in South Africa, where people are like, "Hey, let's start to have a little more autonomy from each other," um, that we're seeing here now as well. Number six here is circuit breakers in a riot epidemic, and he talks about it like um, 
riots are like an epidemic. There's a, a social contagion and it takes physical proximity to trigger people. Um, researchers of contagious riots distinguish between susceptible people, infected people, and recovered people. Someone susceptible is a potential rioter, an infected individual is an active rioter, and a recovered person is one that stopped rioting. For now, the potential of millions of susceptible people, the potential millions of susceptible people have far exceeded the infected rioters. However, concentrations of the poor, well-organized gangs and the ANC's factional strife exist in most provinces. This could fuel the formation of sizable groups that calculate they can get away with looting, arson, and sabotage attacks. Endogenous shifts among the rioters or exogenous effects and shocks may still lead to surges or further containment. So it's really sort of interesting because what he's talking about here, again, this is some stuff that I've kind of touched on as well in different areas. Um, there is something I talked about in my Grant Park piece called uh, the Grano Vetter's um, uh, riot, riot Threshold Model, which is the Grano Vetter's like, social contagion model. And basically what that means is um, not everyone's got a different trigger point to riot. Um, you know, maybe not if you get a bunch of people together in a group. Maybe some people, like, they would not be the first person to riot. But they would be like maybe the the fifth person to riot. Like if four people, like if one, if if you if you have a trigger level of like let's say ten, and there's a group of a hundred people there, well if one person starts rioting like smashing stuff, you may not do anything, but maybe there's someone there that has, you know, um, a level of like two or three, and if someone else, if there's someone with a level of one, that's they wouldn't start a riot, but if someone started smashing and, and they joined in. That would trigger someone with a three. So everyone's got these different trigger levels for rioting or engaging in like mob violence. So you have these people that have very, very low trigger levels. And it's like a cascade effect. Because one person riots, someone else that's extremely susceptible, maybe wouldn't be the first person. They join in and then more people start joining in. And eventually it's like ping ball. Like eventually, even if you have like a level of like 20, you normally would never think you would ever riot. But then, like, 30 people start smashing stuff. Well, you know, you may join in. And, like, that's one of the things that it's really interesting to study. Um, and, and this is something I've talked about before. is like, a lot of the stuff that happens when, when I talk about the concept of protests to cover for riots, riots cover for direct action. Um, one of the things I've mentioned and that we see is there's, like, these, ca like, especially with Antifa and, like, Black Bloc, they'll have a cadre force of people, like an affinity group, that will decide to start smashing stuff. And maybe, like, 30 or 40 people in a group wearing Black Bloc. And that group, once, if you have a group of people that are selected, um, that are people that are already kind of, there's a self-selection process, because they're like, hey, we're going to have a, you know, a, a massive protest at so-and-so, um, and if there's any hints that it may get like disruptive, like people says wear black or something like that, or it seems like it's going to be an aggressive protest, the people that stay when a protest is pretty aggressive are already kind of self-selected. And then too, there's speakers and chants, and those things get people primed to get angry and aggressive. So even though that's that's people that are already going to have kind of a low threshold, and then when they show up to something like that, and their their threshold level is pushed even lower because they're getting primed and pumped up and aggressive and physical then you'll have like a cadre of black block like 40 or 50 people start engaging in big massive like directed violence publicly in front of everyone it will actually cascade into the entire group so this is something that we have seen in um in america I've seen it several times we've, we've, i've documented it written about it um, and it's something that he's talking about there ter here, too. He mentions that the well-organized gangs um, that can start getting away with stuff. And that, again, it, it, once he gets to a certain size, it triggers a lot of people who would never have thought they would ever engage in something like that. The seventh and last one here is the hybrid regime continues. And basically what he says is here, uh, South Africa is a one-party dominant state. It's like it's like California. It's like it's it's so dominant um, when it's one party that controls politics. Um, what happens is 
it, the political battles that matter are not necessarily the electoral battles, not the ones that happen at the voting booth, but the ones that happen inside the party. And he says, the locus of politics shifted to a new political arena where non-democratic and democratic forces, processes, and rules of the game dominate. And that's kind of what he's talking about here. It's like it's not, voting doesn't really matter. Once once it becomes such a one-party state, voting doesn't really matter. It's all about, like, the party politics, which are a much different type of thing than what happens at the voting booth. Um, inter intra-party politics are a completely different game. Um, there's a lot more like crookedness and like backstabbing, and even even granted, even like regular politics is bad. But what you see actually happening in a party are a completely different thing. There's a lot more corruption because that's where um, you know businesses are able and like corrupt people, like wealthy people, are able to have a lot more influence inside the party than they would even though in like an electoral process. So that's a pretty, this is a pretty good piece, and I'll link this in the description as well. I'm going to touch on the last one here, and this one will be very short, and then I'm going to do a quick wrap-up of my main takeaways of this stuff. But I'll link this piece here. Um, the title um, is, uh, Sealy, I guess he's the, a police minister, urges communities not to take matters in their own hands as looting continues. I'm not really going to reach a read over the whole thing. I'll, I'll have it in the description so you can read it. Um... The important thing when I was reading this is I want to go over this, is it kind of, we've touched on this before, there was lots of communities that were having defense forces, and the reason I'm linking this is one particular word, the one particular phrase he uses, and um, let's see, if you work with the soldiers, you work with the police, there's your community police forum, your community in blue, those that work the police station, we are fine with that, but the problem starts when they go for parallel structures. They go themselves and shoot the people and all that. Well, I actually want to talk about this because he said the word he said, parallel structures. This is, that really made my ears kind of perk up because that's, that's a very particular word to use and it's not a completely random word. That has a very particular, very important meaning and this is what I'm going to talk about now. Um, now, this guy, he's a police minister. I, I don't know his background. Um, but, see, so here's the thing. ANC, you know, like like we already established, they are heavily, heavily communist. They were backed by the Soviets. So a lot of their people, they're going to have, um, especially at the upper level, like there's, there's a lot of very committed communists involved. And especially the people at the higher levels are going to be folks that are more likely to be somewhat well-educated. They're going to be crooked as hell, but... A lot of them are more likely to be a little bit more well-spoken and well-educated. Um, I mean, some of these people, uh, gosh, what was it? And, like, just for example, it's like people think all Africans are dumb. Well, no, I mean, like, Nigerians are usually incredibly, like, the ones that come over here. Um, I've met PhDs. Like, we know there's tons of incredibly very smart Africans. Um, I think the guy in Somalia, the general, you know, if, you, if you've seen Black Hawk Down, the general they were hunting, the um, local rebel leader the the warlord was like a harvard graduate so i mean there's there's lots of incredibly very intelligent people so my my thought is when he but the way he was speaking especially when he's talking like parallel structures um this is probably someone who who is probably a communist and he's probably well educated and parallel structures is also something called dual power this is a leftist concept um I've touched on this before in other other episodes, and we touched on it earlier in this episode. We kind of touched on it. Um, the Twitter thread kind of talked about it, and one of the other things I was reading, the, the seven key riot takeaways. Uh, dual power is, you know, when I was talking about cartelification, that's part of it. Uh, a parallel structure is like, what he's describing is called dual power. Like, he called it parallel structures, but it's the same thing. Um you build an alternative structure that underlies the actual government, and then as the government is failing, the structure that you build is able to take on more of the load, and if the, once the government loses legitimacy, if you've got your organization built, then it becomes the government. Then it, then it becomes like the one they turn to, and that's cartelification. Um, that's also cartelification. It's like people started, the cartel becomes the government because the government fails. 
um, dual power, cartelification, parallel structures, that's all the same thing. And that's really sort of what he's complaining about. You know, he's saying it's like, I mean, they've hollowed out the police and and, and military, so they can't really defend this stuff. Um, they're using these rioters. I mean, there, there's, the, there's the rioters, which are looting, that are very opportunistic, and we've already established there are planned forces going around destroying infrastructure. So he's also um, complaining because people are protecting themselves against the rioters, um, and they're also protecting themselves against the the direct action forces. You know, riots, protests are covered for riots, riots are covered for direct action. The direct action forces that are hitting, like, the infrastructure, they're able to stop that happening, too. These community for, for, forums, these community groups that are creating parallel structures or dual power, they're stopping that, um, the people, the damage that they're trying to allow happen, but they're also um, building parallel structures, and he doesn't want that. He wants, you know, the structure that takes over when the government fails. He wants his ANC-aligned factional forces to start to, to fill that gap. So I'm going to wrap this up here, but here, here's the important takeaways from this, and it's very fascinating, but also very scary and, and concerning because we're seeing the same things happen here. Basically, South Africa is a more, they have a more advanced um, stage of the disease that America is currently infected with, seeing a lot of the same things. Um, they abandoned meritocracy and colorblindness, which it was slowly working. It was seen to be helping in South Africa. They abandoned all that for racial grievance politics and explicit laws around like racial giveaways. Um, very race-based explicit politics. I mean, pretty much exactly what you know, Imbram Kendi and Robin D'Angelo want here. You know, everything, if there's any differences, um, you know, they, they have to start, you know, there's no such thing as all, any difference in outcomes has to be de facto racism. Um, so they're, it's all about, you know, equity. Like, uh, Kimbri, Kim, um, Kent, Ibram Kendi's politics, he says, like, uh, Past discrimination um, justifies current discrimination. Current discrimination um, justifies future discrimination. Like that's a quote from him. That's what he he says. You know, we we need to, like, Kendi actually wants to establish a department of anti-racism in the like with a constitutional amendment. And this this department that he wants would be he says specially trained um, experts in anti-racism that would have authority over all elected officials and they could change or impose laws like basically Kendi wants a dictatorship that's not democratically elected to even a beyond whatever the Supreme Court is whatever level they are he wants something over everyone that can impose unilaterally policies like look it up he, he talks about his department of anti-racism um, but that's basically what South Africa is moving towards and it's turning into a shit show because it's massively corrupt you have to hire people explicitly on the basis of race. The person could be incompetent. Um, oftentimes they are. And because of that, you know, there's a massive flight of capital out of the country. You know, people are not willing to invest there because you've got you've got to hire people um, that are incompetent. You have to have businesses, um, owners, co-owners of your business that are, are black, even doesn't matter who they are. Like they they just they impose an explicit racial preferences on the country, and it basically wrecked everything. And people they have politicians that are um, leveraging racial tensions, which are always going to exist a little bit. Instead of like trying to focus on unity, they focused on agitating um, those divisions and stoking those divisions and um, you know grievances for their own ends. Um, he also kind of talked there. They had the same thing about the Granovetter's collective action threshold, uh, contagious rioting threshold. That's something, um, it's like peer pressure. Um, in, instead of like a, 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 you know, there's like peer pressure, which basically rioting, like rioting around peer pressure. You know, once, once the level hits for a person to start rioting, um, you know, that's when a riot kind of kicks off. Um, that seems to have happened in South Africa, like what I've talked about before here that we're seeing. You get a bunch of people together, you agitate them. Um, they're already sort of selected for people that are angry because it's a protest, so it's automatically going to be people that are at least somewhat aggravated and motivated. 
so you have a cadre that can kind of trigger that group. Um, and in South Africa, there's obviously very explicit um, examples of direct action, which is, you know, the, the, the pro there's protests and there's riots, and the riots are the looting and the rioting. Um, that provides cover because it, it overwhelms the police force. They can't respond to calls for aid. So once they're overwhelmed, the direct action stage kicks in. Um, and the direct action is when they were like attacking infrastructure. Like they were burning power stations in South Africa. Like the, what is there to loot in a power station? There's like nothing. You know, are, are you going to go burn a field somewhere? Like they were burning fields there. Um, they were burning like, you know, radio stations. What are you going to loot at a radio station? Nothing. You know, cell, t cell phone tower. Um, like they had a hundred cell phone towers destroyed. What do you loot there? Nothing. I mean, maybe you can steal copper, but that's really about it. You can't eat that. Um, you know, so yeah, there was a lot of that happening. Um, there's also the cartelification. Uh, the cartelification, uh, the parallel structures, the dual power. Um, that's all really different aspects of the same thing that we kind of, t that all, all of those stories kind of, all of those pieces I, I, I talked about kind of touched on that. Um, you know, it's, yes, you have to have, you know, if the government collapses, you know, there, there's going to be an institution, there's going to be a structure in the country. So if the government just fails, um, whatever is the most cohesive structure in the country is going to be the one that has power. Like, it doesn't even have to necessarily seize power um, by itself, not planned. But if it's just, if it's the only institution left standing... And, you know, if it's the most cohesive institution left standing, then de facto it becomes the government. Um, another point here, and this is going to be the last point that I, I want to bring up, and I think it's the important thing. It kind of it bolsters a lot of things I've said before. It's very difficult to build a network reaction in the middle of a civil unrest. It's much more important to have that framework, that network already built by the time it happens. So, um... When your neighborhood is on fire, it's not a good time to go knock on. I mean, you know, your neighbor may may not want to answer their door if looters happening. But, you know, hey, it's like, hey, I'm your neighbor, Fred. You know, uh, hey, there's like looting down the street. Do you want to set up a community self-defense force? That's kind of like a little late to do that. Like you can probably do it. But it's going to be very ad hoc. It's very helpful if you already know who your neighbors are and you already kind of have a little agreement. Like you've got your neighbor's phone numbers. Maybe your neighbor has some gear. You know, you know who to ask first. Maybe not everyone's going to be down for that, but if you know who to ask and who to go to, um, and you at least have some basic agreement, like, hey, you know, I've, I've got a radio. Here's the channel we use. Um, you know, I've got some gear or whatever. So, if if we ever walk outside one morning and like the neighborhood across from ours or the 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 mall two blocks over is on fire. Um, yeah, let's call each other and like let's put the group together and we'll like close off this street and everything. It's it's so much better to kind of have that before the uh, world is on fire and the government collapses. So it's very important. Again, I've talked about this before. I'm going to keep talking about it because it's very important. Um, a lot of these people kind of knew each other. It sounds like um, reading about the the community groups that got together and started protecting their neighborhoods. They're people that knew each other. Um, like I talked to my friends that were there in South Africa and like, yeah, it's kind of the same. It's like, you know, it was like folks that they knew and those were the kind of the first people to kind of congeal together and form a neighborhood self-defense. Um, and a lot of these people too, it sounds like some of the community leaders were the people that were kind of behind it. Like they, like a local business, if there's a local business, um, association, like, a lot of those folks were the ones pushing, protecting local businesses. Like, hey, they would start making phone calls to the other business owners, and they would run down there and meet each other, meet up together and start protecting things. So that's a very important thing. Those are the three three takeaways um, that I take away from this. It's like, you're seeing the same stuff happen here. Um, racial grievance stuff. We saw the Grano Vetter's riot threshold in South Africa. You're seeing the dual power stuff. Um and yeah build your infrastructure and build your local community before it happens and i can give another plug out here too i'll have another link in the description i have two big pieces i wrote for um, be ready magazine which is from outdoor sportsman's group it's a yearly issue from firearms news i've got two big pieces on riot dynamics with a lot more very detailed information 
And I've also got another article in there. It's like almost 7,000 words of the two put together uh, on building your local tribe. So be sure to order a um, order a couple copies of that magazine. I think you'll find there's lots of other good stories in there too on different aspects of preparedness. But you know my two stories I think are pretty awesome, and I think they're very relevant. Thanks so much for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed my discussion on this and my breakdown. I hope you learned a few things. Again, please go sign up to my Substack if you have not already, contextualinsurgent.substack.com. Um, please share, like, subscribe um, to this podcast as well as my Substack. I have my Patreon at patreon.com backslash eesmith4 as well. All your support will be appreciated. Until next time, have a great one.